This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. When our Zoomer squad joined Fight Back on Monday, it was hours before the televised Ontario election debate and an opportunity to talk about whether the issues affecting older voters would resonate with the leaders. Would health care, home care and long term care be prominent in the debate? Libby asked this of Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, CARP's Chief Membership Officer and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. I think that um, the parties are all smart enough to come forward waving the banner of healthcare and talk about it. I mean, no, no leader is going to say there's some other issue that you know, I care about more and let's forget about health care. So they've all got to kind of bow at the altar of health care and come up with something. So it's there. But I, I'm not suggesting it's the only issue. And then depending on where you live and what you need and what you're happy with or unhappy with, I think, cost of living and, and, and the health of the economy, uh, even though the province uh, has a less ability to impact that than the feds do, I think that's going to be important. But Looking at the CARP 5 and looking at tonight's debate, I think what we should be watching is what, where is health care? I don't expect the whole debate to be about health care, but where is it in the scheme of things? Are they realistic? Do they sound like they know what to do or what, at least a few things to do? And are they serious about it? Peter, do you think people remember the carnage in long-term care during COVID? Uh, I just saw another report. Canada had the worst record of all the wealthy countries, hands down. You know, it's like a lot of people seem to be taking the attitude, well, you know, they were old. Yeah, and, you know, that's an attitude, like, it's an easy attitude to take. But looking at this report and some of the stark numbers, um, you know, in Canada, 88% of the deaths occurred in long-term care, and, in, and the next closest country was 66%. And it was, and that was Spain, which isn't, you know, had a, had a, a terrible uh, experience of COVID. So, you know, it, it's so uh, it's it's so appallingly um, evident in, in in this report that something is terribly wrong with the system, and it's not able to deal with. with with COVID, or the next virus, or or what, what whatever happens, and something has to be happening. And, and you know, if if our memory is that short term from you know basically last year to this year, um, that's a big worry because uh, you know unless we're just going to give up on the system altogether and, and and let it you know run it into the ground or whatever, something has to be done. Something big has to be done, and. Uh, you know, just looking at uh, what the parties are offering, I, I don't think uh, I don't think they're even taking it seriously enough. Bill, I think that uh, we're probably uh, discovering that uh, although uh, CARP and our leadership are extremely concerned about uh, uh, about health care and especially the issues that we have in the 
in the CARP-5 that actually um, the the general public and the politicians are always focused on the most current thing, and the most current thing for them is financial security, it's uh, cost of living, it's even transportation and and uh, roads. And we're hearing this not just in Ontario, but right across, across the, the country that Everybody agrees that the health issues are there, but it's almost like they're taking them for granted. I'm not sure whether that means they don't think they can be fixed. They don't think that governments are sincere about it, or they think it's going to take long to fix a system that's in such a horrible mess. So their current concerns are about today, and today's concern is is how they're how they're going to live and finance themselves uh, in the in the next uh, month. So I think perhaps the political parties do have the right uh, idea when they're uh, first of all they don't have good answers for health care. So what are they going to say? And secondly, financial concerns are more immediate with the voters uh, this year. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, CARP's Chief Membership Officer and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. So that conversation was from before the election debate, and coming up, is the after conversation. On Tuesday, Libby was joined by Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel, who offered their thoughts on the messaging and performances by the four leaders. Howard Hampton is the former Ontario NDP leader. Charles Souza is the former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. And Lisa Raitt is a former Deputy Leader of the Federal Conservative Party. The Premier did exactly what he needed to do. He needed to go out and he needed to be able to roll with the criticisms that were levied against them and punch back against them and just get his message out and, and continuously talk about all the things that the conservative, the progressive conservative party says that they have done for the past four years and, and make the case on why he should be reelected. So, yeah, I think, you know, he accomplished what his team would have set out for him to do. Charles, last week you were saying that you thought Stephen Del Duca had to make himself a little more likable, accessible human. Do you think he did that? Um, you know, they all performed well, but you're right. There was no gotcha, no home runs. And Stephen, you know, this is his opportunity to be introduced, to be seen, to be able to hold his own against um, Doug Ford particularly. Um, I thought he did that. Um, he tried to land a few issues like you're not showing up for work 82% of the time. And, you know, we're not battling Kathleen Wynn's record. I'm calling about what we're doing going forward. Neither one of them seemed to resonate as best as he was hoped. But he stood up and he came across articulately and he was, you know, he, he, he showed himself to be uh, more statesmanlike and more, and more able to defend the, the issues of the country and the province specifically. So I thought that part was well. He he kept mentioning his family, and and some people thought that came off kind of forced. Yeah. So listen, we all we all have our own families. We're all fighting for that. But I, I would prefer him just talk about other people's families and others, right? I mean, Andrew Horvath does it very well. She she brings in some ability to show what's happened with a particular family, and she spoke with somebody. She uses that tactic every time, and that's how she gets her message across. I think Stephen was trying to be a bit more personable in that regard. But, um, yeah, it didn't come across, and he tried it a few times. Um, listen, his strength is his 
mind, is his ability to deal with complex issues, to make things work. And to communicate that is sometimes difficult. But I think he showed himself to be a bit more conscientious in that regard than Doug Ford. Howard Hampton, how did Andrea Horvath do? Uh, There are uh, people watching who thought that she kind of got lost in the middle. She was attacking Del Duca. Ford was attacking Del Duca, where she kind of um, maybe got her message a bit squished. Well, I I think uh, both Mr. Ford and Mr. Del Duca are are hoping that voters have a very short memory because they, they both have a a record of some sort to deal with. When you have uh, three men and one woman in a debate, uh, it, uh, it can be aggressive, and I thought there was some very, some very heavy aggression last night. I think where Andrea did well is in not talking about herself and not talking about nebulous things, but talking about people and how they've been affected by what's happened, whether it was covid or whether it's the fact that all kinds of people now, after they pay the grocery bill, after they pay the hydro bill, after they pay the gas bill for their car, don't have much left over. And, and uh, the, the, the thought of owning a home is, is something that uh, most people can't do now. And, and, and in fact, paying the rent uh, is a huge issue now. And I thought uh, that's where she did well, because I think she captured what a majority of Ontarians are feeling today. I mean, Mr. Ford wants you to believe that Ontario is now some idyllic place to live, that there was no COVID, that there are no exploding uh, grocery bills and there are no exploding gasoline bills and there are no exploding rents and no exploding cost of housing. That's just not Ontario. And I think uh, people see through that. I thought that's where Andrea did well. Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister, and Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel joined Libby the day after the big debate. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, travel sounds great. Once you get through the lineups and long waits at the airport, we'll discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The summer travel season is just about here. People are anxious to get away after two years of the pandemic. And recent delays at Toronto's Pearson Airport are described by many as epic. Why is the process so backed up? Did no one in charge foresee that travel would pick up once the virus was waning? At the same time, the number of passengers is just 70% of pre-pandemic levels and staffing is at 90%. Joining Libby to discuss what's going on, Dr. Gabor Lukash, President of Air Passenger Rights, and David Flowers, President of District 140 at the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. The lineups that the passengers are encountering right now are... Uh, to do with the uh, the backlog at the screening uh, stations to get through uh, security. Are staffing levels at 90% pre-pandemic? 
Oh, well, that's interesting. And, and I'll, I'll say this, Libby. First off, this, this isn't created by our members, and I, we ask the public to be patient. This is a, it's not a negotiation issue. You know, this is an issue, what we see as a, a problem in mismanagement of human resources by CASA and its third parties in, in preparing for this. I do find it interesting that only two weeks ago, both on the minister, uh, minister's websites and CASA's websites, uh, they said they're not immune to retention and staffing issues. And somehow one week later, um, they're back out in the public explaining that it's the general public's fault and that these uh, staffing numbers are back to what they are. Um, they're hiring, and yes, that's true, they're, they're rushing to get people hired, but this takes weeks and weeks to, uh, to get people up to properly trained and qualified. So what we're seeing they're doing right now is they're only uh, limited training uh, so that they can expedite this process and get people back out onto the floor. But what that does is it, it puts more strain on the uh, fully qualified people, and the fully qualified people are being forced to have frequent schedule changes. So I'm not really sure where they got those numbers, but I can definitely tell you if our members were allowed to speak, they'd tell you the real truth. We've been looking at the, uh, the travel numbers upcoming for July and August, and those numbers go significantly up from where we are right now. So if you look at the lineups right now and, and you understand that there uh, is no quick fix to getting this, uh, this, this issue fixed, Unless this is something that they uh, they actively work on, uh, we're going to have uh, real issues. Let's bring in Dr. Gabor Lukash, founder and president of Air Passenger Rights. What are your thoughts on these huge bottlenecks we're hearing about, particularly in security? You know, this is one of the few situations where I have to say it is not the airline's fault as a first message to passengers. It sounds like it is the fault of CATSA and of various um, governmental bodies that are supposed to ensure that uh, the flow of passenger is smooth at the airports. I don't accept the Minister of Transport's theory that somehow the passengers are responsible for it. Yeah, so, I love that. Pa- passengers are passengers. They, they, I don't think that passengers are now taking much longer than they have been taking before. I, I haven't seen any any clear evidence of that. If you have taken the time of how much time it takes for, they say, a thousand passengers to go to security last year, if even if the minister was correct that now it takes more time, the increase supposedly caused by COVID would have been long known before. So we are talking about things that are predictable, would have been known well in advance, and the government, cats, and other bodies chose not to act on it. So what I advise passengers is that if they incur losses as a result, they should sue CATSA. <laughs> they have, uh, uh, CATSA is not like a, in a socialist country where, you know, they can, they can just uh, decide how much service they provide. It's a, it's a service for something that passengers have paid for. And if they create problems, if they cause passengers to miss their flights, then they are liable like any other corporation, any other company. What do you want to tell people about what to expect this summer? I think passengers should expect a lot of problems, and, and they should uh, be ready to fight for a better, better air transportation. Just remember you get not what you pay for, what you're willing to put up with. If you're willing to put up with this, this is going to continue to be a problem. If you are willing to put some time, energy, effort, money into fighting back now, next year we're going to get a better service.
Dr. Gabor Lukash, president of Air Passenger Rights, and David Flowers, president of District 140 at the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How did we get to the point where we're paying $2 a liter for gas, and even more than that in recent days? Dan McTagg is always a reliable source for giving us advance notice on incremental hikes in the price of gas. And lately, those hikes have been more than incremental. Dan is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and joined Libby on Tuesday to explain what got us here. Last year, I remember doing an interview with a good friend that I worked with many years ago when I was at Toyota Canada. Uh, David Booth from Driving.ca and uh, had pointed out that we'd probably be looking at a potential of $2 a litre the year later. And uh, here we are. Uh, that and then some, and a lot of to do with uh, things getting back to normal and uh, not having enough supply. We've, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, kind of when you, you paint yourself into a corner when you say, no more fossil fuels, uh, you, uh, you restrict them, you, you find ways not to finance them, you block pipelines. Um, you know, along comes Vladimir Putin, threatens uh, Europe. Uh, you know, we want to sanction him, uh, but it creates an even worse situation than anything we probably probably could have imagined just a, a year or so ago. So, you know, we're uh, we're dealing with uh, an unusual circumstance in which uh, Canadians have uh, tried to transition away, or at least our government has, and uh, the cost is uh, is becoming pretty apparent. It's not just, of course, gasoline; it's diesel. Diesel's in short supply. There's concerns about shortages throughout much of uh, northwestern, north, northeastern North America. There's concern about, of course, oil itself, 3 million barrels short. Uh, there really isn't a lot of good news here, and it's not just confined to energy. It's also now making its way into pretty much every other aspect of our lives, even for those of us who don't drive, even those of us who believe we can buy an electric car for 100000 uh, bucks, uh, even those of us who have to look at food prices, whether we like it or not. Uh, fooling around with energy has uh, enormous uh, unforeseen and certainly unintended consequences. Dan McTague, how much of this can we attribute to the war in Ukraine? Uh, a little bit, not a lot. Most of it uh, was baked in well be- before the war began, well before Russia began amassing troops uh, on the Ukrainian border. Uh, we knew that there was going to be a shortage of about 2 million barrels. We knew that uh, we weren't going to get it, be able to get it from OPEC. We knew the United States was producing about a million and a half barrels less than what it did just pre-pandemic. We knew that demand would eventually have to be satisfied, especially uh, as the global economy is trying to play catch-up after two years of lockdowns. So a lot of this, uh, you know, is uh, is uh, is really not related to. You'll hear a lot of politicians say, "Oh, this is a this is a global phenomenon." It would be a global phenomenon if a country like Canada, with a third largest oil reserves in the world didn't decide to uh to uh you know to uh, fold its cards and uh drop its tent and move away from producing oil and finding ways to stop production of oil and then worse libby uh shutting down pipelines which the trudeau government did now by the way i'm a liberal of 18 years as a member of parliament so i'm saying this because it was deliberate policy of the Canadian government to shut down the energies pipeline the northern gateway pipeline and uh, there's a few others that would have made possible that Canadian oil could have displaced what Russia is now holding 
uh, and blackmailing Europe with. And so, uh, you know, this is not a global issue. This is a made-at-home Canadian problem. And worse, Libby, in the ways that people don't really always see it, it's not just fuel prices, as I mentioned earlier. We've also weakened the Canadian dollar. It takes 130 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar. That's adding 30 cents of the price of gasoline. That's why a lot of your callers are calling and saying, hey, last time we saw $110 oil, it was only $1.35 at the, at the gas pumps. They're right. Uh, no, no. So thirty-five cents, thirty, thirty-five cents. We Canadian dollar. Add the taxes since then. The province of Ontario, in the uh, McGuinty era, twenty ten, introduced the eight percent uh, sales tax, and then you have the carbon tax, twelve and a half cents a liter. So these things do, in fact, uh, add up. Dan, anything else you want to leave us with quickly? Uh, just very simply, I think at the end of all of this, uh, you know, by midsummer things could calm down a little bit, but we're back to the reality. Two dollars may very well be seen as a bargain going forward. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Robert in Toronto called about the future of health care after the Ontario election. Come June 3rd, will Ontarians show their OHIP card or their credit card? when they go to their doctor's appointment. That, I think, is a vital part of the issue here when, when we're talking about the here and now. If Ford gets a majority, all the things that he's been doing to dismantle and defund health care and turn it over to privatization will be amplified. Barry in North York phoned about an issue he feels is missing from the Ontario election campaign. I have one question, and that is, why is more focus not put on the environment by the candidate since it's starting to really devastate our world and also greatly affecting the economy as well. Carolyn in Halliburton called about how the high gas prices are affecting her plans. Gas prices and how it's affecting those of us in um, the senior age group and particularly those of us who live rurally. Uh, We retired to our cottage and so any place we go is minimum of 40, 45 minutes away, and most of it's in an hour or two. So for us, we are looking at cutting back on traveling. We're RVers, and this summer, it will mean probably half the trips or less. Um, and when we go grocery shopping, which already is a painful thing, um, we think very seriously about how many stops we can make at other places in order to make the trip a, a viable thing. But it's um, it's scary. And I guess my biggest question, I've been listening to your other callers talk about the whys of it, but at the bottom of it all, I also read about record profits by the oil companies. And how does this compute? To me, profit means after expenses are are paid. So if they can make profits, why are we paying so much more? Derek in Markham called about whether Canada should be part of the monarchy, a discussion we had prompted by the royal visit. I think it is time we get rid of the monarchy. We don't need that in Canada. Um, It's about time to get rid of it. I came from 
the islands, and I know what I went through as a kid. Take me out of school for hours and take put me at the side of the road with a small Union Jack in my hand, you know, and they came along in a Rover, a Land Rover Jeep with a shade over them. And we don't need that in Canada. It's time to get rid of the monarchy. Jan in Guelph also called about Canada and the monarchy. I really would like to see the monarchy stay, even though it will be different. It will be a younger set of, uh, you know, people. But what about our British pensions? Will it affect that? Huh, I hope not. <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't uh, think no, so I'd if like you're to British. I'd like monarchy stay for many reasons, too many to list. I just think it's wonderful uh, to have the monarchy, that's all. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Douglas in Port Perry, who also called about the super high gas prices. I'm on a fixed income. I'm 70 years old, right? Yep. And uh, I have a cottage, as you know, on Lake Scugog. I live in Oshawa, and uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I, it, it's just the price of gas is absurd just for me to get there and back. And it can't be more than a 40-minute drive. I got to go to Toronto tomorrow and visit uh, and take my 98-year-old mother out for dinner because she never gets out. And uh, like just to go there and back tomorrow is uh, outrageous. Douglas, we hope you had a nice time with your mom. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.